have your Bibles, turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. You ever been in a difficult situation with people that you didn't know exactly what to do? You weren't sure how to respond to that person at the table that was causing trouble. You didn't know whether or not you should say something, do something, or just outright ignore it. Well, today we'll be looking at some of these difficult situations that we face as the people of God and get insight as to how to best deal with troublemakers and those that are also simply in need in our local church. This morning we're going to be looking at three things here in this text, starting in verse number nine. Number one, avoiding worthless controversy, verse nine. Number two, rejecting divisive people, verses 10 through 11. And number three, focusing on others, verses 12 through 15. We're essentially wrapping up the letter to Titus by the Apostle Paul this morning. And I I must say, as I, I was studying through it and finishing this up, I found something very fascinating in the text that we're going to be dealing with this morning. That Paul essentially gives a final warning and a final encouragement. He wraps them both here at the end. But he starts off, number one here, with avoiding worthless controversy. Verse 9. Look at what it says. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. If there's one area that doesn't get talked about enough in many churches, it's what to avoid as far as conversations in the church. What to avoid that sounds wholesome but really isn't. It sounds like it would be a good thing to talk about, but really it's empty talk. Doesn't mean anything, doesn't profit anyone. We're going to take a look at some of these words used by the Apostle Paul, sandwiched between doing good works in verse 8 and the closing remarks found in verses 12 through 15. The first word that comes up without much Greek study is the word avoid. Or as the King James puts it, shun. To those that don't understand what that word means, it means stay away from. There really isn't a deep Greek study that you need to do on the word. It literally means what it says here in the text. There is something to be said for the Apostle Paul that he had much to say about many subjects. But when it came to these things that I'm about to list, you need to stay away from. That's what he's telling Titus. Your congregation needs to stay away from these things. They need to avoid, shun, don't get into these discussions. And he also gives you the reason at the end. He actually gives you why that's the case. He says, because they don't bring benefit at the end. They're worthless. They don't benefit anybody. First one that he starts with is foolish disputes. This really opens up almost open-ended, but when you see this list that he gives, Paul is specifically speaking to church folks who bring in controversy regarding the law and scripture. If we look in 2 Timothy 2, we see a little more insight as to what Paul is actually referring to here probably. So turn to to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and you'll see this in verse 14. Remind them of these things charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Drop down to verse 23 in 2 Timothy 2. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. You don't need to talk about everything. There are things to be avoided when it comes to topics of conversation in the church. 
I think so much of our emphasis in many sermons is, what do we need to do? What do we need to say? What do we not need to say might be something we need to start considering in light of this text. What do we need to stop talking about should be something we consider in light of this text. You see, Hymenaeus and Philetus were stirring controversy in opposing Paul's teaching on the resurrection, teaching that the resurrection had already passed. Probably, in some sense, they were spiritually raised with Christ, but not physically in the future. These people had more of a Gnostic mentality. These men, through their teaching, were overthrowing the faith of others. There's nothing wrong with questioning things. But when you question clearly revealed scripture, you are literally a tool of Satan. It starts all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Has God not said? That's exactly what the serpent did with the women. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And essentially, the same lie is still perpetrated today. That we become our own gods, if you will. Determining what we think God really meant rather than what he clearly stated. Simply put, if a person is teaching you something from Scripture and it's causing you to rather doubt what Scripture clearly reveals, it is foolishness. If there are clear statements in Scripture and someone says, you know what, I don't really think it means that, that's a danger. That's foolishness. Ignorant disputes are prevalent in the church today where speculation overtakes the in-depth study of the Word of God. There are a lot of people that talk about how much they love the Lord and how much they really know about the Bible, and they're very ignorant when it comes to the Bible. They haven't put any time in actual study. You see them online all the time, spewing off a bunch of stuff that they have no clue about because they've never really studied the text. Those are the people you need to be avoiding. Those are the people that you should avoid becoming. Many that only know how to question God's word among the people of God don't even know what they're talking about many times. Because to them, scripture isn't even inspired. It's just a good book to read. It has a couple good truths in it. You don't really need to apply this right here. That was their context, their culture. It doesn't apply to you at all. The next word that's mentioned here is interesting. Genealogies. Like, this was an interesting one for me as I saw this list. I was like, why would you put this on the list? I mean, don't we have the genealogies, the book of Matthew, Luke? Well, that's not really what's in reference here. What Paul is not referring to is avoiding looking at a list that we find in the beginning of Matthew. But rather, what many were doing was building their credentials based on the family that they came from, or supposedly came from at times. Some were actually making false connections to prominent people in the Jewish community, propping their place in the church. Well, you know, I have a lineage that comes from this, this rabbi right here, so I'm authoritative now. They were essentially putting stock in who they knew and how they were connected. We've all heard people exaggerate someone they are somehow connected to, have we not? Like my third distant cousin is connected to so-and-so, and so I've got royalty in my blood, right? Like, whatever it is that somebody states that's just an exaggeration to try to prove a point. As long as it can validate their lifestyle or opinion on a subject, right? It's the person that's grateful for their lineage, but only in a fraudulent way, right? I'm so grateful that I knew this person. They taught me so much. But the person really is saying that they only care for what they got out of that lineage. Not so much what that person brought as a benefit to them. It's amazing to me, and I, and I, and I say this with trepidation, how many people honor somebody in their death by saying, oh, I love this person, they're wonderful, and they don't want to live the very things they proclaimed about that person. I've seen it at Christian funerals all the time. Oh, so-and-so, they loved God. They were an amazing Christian. And you ask yourself, why aren't you doing any of that? Why are you taking on their mantle without actually practicing what they practiced? 
Why are you so proud of that brother or sister that loved the Lord so much that you don't care to do the things that, they, that you said fascinated you about them? Maybe what we're trying to do is borrow someone else's righteousness based on our connection to them and assume that God's okay with that in sharing that with others. No, each one of us has an individual walk with God. Every one of us does. I can't walk for you, you can't walk for me. You can't walk for your children, they can't walk for you. Which is why this is an area that Paul brings up. When you're, who you're related to doesn't give you ultimate status in the kingdom, by the way. Well, my parents, they went to church. My parents, my, my dad was a deacon. My dad was a pastor. That doesn't qualify you. God's not going to go, let me see the lineage. Oh, you're from this family. You're in. It comes from faith in Christ, not your Christian family line. One of the reasons why I'm a little careful with what I see with covenant theology on this. The next phrase we see here, contentions and strivings about the law. Fighting over things that are not commanded or even implied in scripture should be avoided at all costs. That's what Paul's getting at. There's some stuff you don't need to debate. I love what Wearsby says about this. Very insightful statement. See if you agree. I have learned that professed Christians who like to argue about the Bible are usually covering up some sin in their lives, are very insecure, and are usually unhappy at home, at work, or at home. Ouch. When we start fighting about some standard that we want to impose on others that God never stated in his word, we are in this territory that we should have avoided. And I'm not talking about a conscience issue here, okay? Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But sometimes what ends up happening is there are things that God works on in your life and you feel like you have the right, as soon as God convicts you over something, to go impose that on everybody else. There are temptations by many in the church to argue over what really doesn't matter at the end. Spurgeon's statement here brings it home. Our days are few and are far better spent in doing good than in disputing over matters which are at best of minor importance. The old schoolmen did a world of mischief by their incessant discussion of subjects of no practical importance. And our churches suffer much from petty wars over abstruse, points and unimportant questions. After everything has been said that can be said, neither party is any wiser. And therefore the discussion no more promotes knowledge than love. And it is foolish to sow in so barren a field. Questions upon points wherein scripture is silent, among, upon mysteries which belong to God alone, upon prophecies of doubtful interpretation, and upon mere modes of observing human ceremonials, are all foolish and wise men avoid them. Our business is neither to ask nor answer foolish questions, but to avoid them altogether. And if we observe the apostles' precept to be careful to maintain good works, we shall find ourselves far too occupied with profitable business to take much interest in unworthy, contentious, and needless strivings. What a killjoy, Spurgeon. We're just discussing some things. We just want to talk about some stuff. What's wrong with that? What are we supposed to be doing then? What's great is he answers her at the end of this reading. There are, however, some questions which are the reverse of foolish, which we must not avoid, but fairly and honestly meet, such as these. Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I renewed in the spirit of my mind? Am I walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit? Am I growing in grace? Does my conversation adorn the doctrine of God, my Savior? Am I looking for the coming of the Lord and watching as a servant sh should do who expects his master? What more can I do for Jesus? Such inquiries as these urgently demand 
our attention. And if we have been at all given to caviling, let us now therefore turn our critical abilities to a service so much more profitable. Let us be peacemakers and endeavor to lead others both by our precept and example to avoid foolish questions. Brothers and sisters, some things are a waste of our time. What Spurgeon is essentially getting at is some are so consumed with the controversial new insight that they don't care for practical implications of their pursuit. So many are good at asking questions but so terrible at answering them practically. Where is this going to take you once you come to that conclusion? That's why when you have these new philosophies that people present today in modern Christendom, they're garbage because they're not informed. They're borrowing from the world and putting it into scripture and trying to blend the two together. And they can't be further apart. When you and I want to know more from Scripture, then we need to truly want to grow in our relationship with God, not just learn more facts. Or just to simply find some new truth that can impress others. There are so many that know so much, but live so little of what they do know. Their knowledge has surpassed their practical living. These points of controversy in churches are simply unprofitable and worthless. If they don't bet the, benefit the body of Christ, they're not doing what God has intended. Which is why these types of controversies should be avoided, church. But what are we to do with those that continually bring division? Because sometimes that just keeps happening, doesn't it? Sometimes they can't be simply avoided. Well, number two, Paul talks about this, rejecting divisive people, verses 10 through 11. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a man is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. After you've warned a divisive person multiple times, they are to be rejected and essentially excommunicated from the fellowship. This is not the approach of most churches today. They, they're not just to be removed from fellowship at the first sign. They are to be removed after multiple warnings. So your goal isn't just to remove somebody that's off. Your goal is to warn them and say, this is damaging to others in this church. Be aware. If they don't listen, then you go to that step. You follow the pattern of Matthew 18. A similar pattern. In case you think this is a one-off statement by Paul, let's take a look at some of the other books or letters that he wrote and what he himself did as an apostle. The warning is important to all that fall in this area. Because there are may still be restoration, by the way. All of us, a time or two, or many, have been off and needed to be confronted and need to be dealt with and need to be told the truth. And most of us that know that we were wrong, we saw that God eventually convicts us over that and we repent. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26, Paul says this to Timothy, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. You still have to correct. You don't avoid it. You don't ignore it. You need to correct. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Paul always starts with, hey, you need to warn. You need to warn those people in the church. You don't ignore that. Unfortunately, many churches never make it past the first step. They warn and warn and do nothing else. Some don't even get to the first step. They ignore it altogether. 
We'll read this first account in 1 Corinthians 5 from the New Living Translation about sexual immorality that was openly celebrated in the congregation back then. In case you think it's a modern problem and modern churches are so horrible, it was in the early church too. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. This isn't to be tolerated and be okay with. This isn't like, oh, well, you know, grace will eventually reach them. They're a brother or sister in the church. They're in this open sin. We should be okay with it. It needs to be confronted. And if the person's openly committing it and not repenting, they need to be removed from the fellowship. Dropping down to verse 9. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. This is not some new thing. And this is where a lot of the church today gets it so wrong. God is a God of grace. He's not the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't have any severity when it comes to these things. We should just be loving and let people live what they want. And I always ask myself, has this person read any of the writings of the Apostle Paul? Because if they did, they would see what needs to be done. But this is how these people get you today. Well, the Apostle Paul, he's not Jesus. That's how they pull that one. Those are just his opinion. Um, Jesus called him directly. Jesus revealed himself directly to him on the road to Damascus. Paul was also confirmed by the other apostles that saw the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to take his authority over your new argument that you're trying to bring up. See, the truth is this. A similar statement's made about Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy... According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Whoa, Paul, where's the love? How could you do this? Don't you love these people? He's already warned them. He's already gently warned them. Because Paul took that stance. But when someone continually rejects and they're entrapped by Satan, you have to follow through on what God says. Because you actually love them and you want what God wants for them. When this is a rejection of truth, the person is turned over to Satan in that they no longer are under the protection of God by means of the local church. Just as it was the part in the Corinthian sexually immoral lifestyle that this man was living. Excommunication via church discipline is always a means to bring a person back in fellowship with God and his people. It is not a means to just cut people off. It is a means by which God has determined that a church cares so much about an individual in not contaminating the rest of the body that they will put them aside for a time with the hopes that God should restore them in repentance. Not to isolate them 
for endless time. Or with the hopes that that person comes back to the faith and sees the wrong that they've done before God and sees how they've affected that community and repents. After a person has been warned and still rejects the correction of the church, they are to be left outside the fellowship of that local church. Church discipline, by the way, is not practiced today because church membership is not practiced. The reason why church discipline isn't practiced is because church membership isn't a priority in any churches anymore. People can come and go as they please, go wherever they want. They have no community that's really their own. They can hop churches, move around. And what's amazing to me is that people still want to consider themselves a family when they can't even deal with family matters in that home church. People that are divisive don't hold any responsibility in the church that they attend because they can not be held accountable because they're not members. Especially when a church doesn't even believe in membership. That one I find striking. Where in scripture does membership exist? Oh, look at all the discipline that's executed in the early church and you'll see that membership exists. You can't be executing church discipline if you don't have membership. It's not possible. Theological fallacy. As the text implies here, that person is twisted in their thinking and in sin because they thrive off of stirring the pot. They are self-condemned. This is dangerous. You see, church membership should be something that's precious, but is viewed as something horrible by many professing Christians. Well, I don't want to commit. Who wants to commit to be a member of a church today? I don't like contracts, right? That's why we have no contracts for our cell phone plans now, many of us. I don't want to be bound to anything. Let me do what I want. No one's going to tell me what to do, right? That's the patriotic new way, right? We don't submit to anyone. And what God says to submit, he didn't really mean that. Right? It's my rights. What I want. America. Isn't that the attitude sometimes? Being a part of a local church which cares and loves its people and strives to please God should be what every follower of Jesus would want. And essentially, they would desire to be a part of. Because I'm going to pause for a moment and say this, brothers and sisters, as a pastor of a church, I still need all of you. It's not a Lone Ranger ministry. I can't do it on my own. If I didn't have other brothers speaking into my life, I can't do it on my own. And see, that's the problem. A lot of you, you're, 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 you kind of come to the local church and go, you know what? Yeah, I'm a member of this church, but really, what do I have to offer the church? Here's one area you can offer something. Build into the life of others around you. Allow them to build into your life. That's what God's called us to. And when they come across maybe a little harsh and you're like, man, I don't like how they said that, give them a pass, understand they might be caring about you right now, you just don't like it. Not every word that's spoken is meant to harm you that might be sounding like it's harsh. God has some, like, truths in here that we don't want to wrestle with. Like, how about this one? For every er circumstance in your life that you're going through that's difficult, God is sovereign. Try that one on for wrestling. Like, God, I got my own life. I'm going to live it my way. Oh, really? How much do you really control? How much do you really control? Well, God, if I just do this, it's going to turn out this way. Did it? What happened? It's not fair, is it? Wandering on your own, being a lone ranger is not the way God intended Christians to operate. And so many of us will do that. We'll come to church and still operate like lone rangers. We'll come to church and be like, yeah, I went to church on Sunday, didn't connect with anybody because they don't care about me, I don't really care about them, move on. God wants more for us. He desires more for us as a church. 
God didn't intend us to be lone rangers, nor did, nor did he opt for church hopping method that many Christians prefer today. I don't like it here, I'm going to go over there. I don't like it there, I'm going to go somewhere else. God wants you to be committed to a local church that you can consider family and that you really are growing together with other saints. The truth is, all of us need that. A divisive person is not to be given special attention and catered to. They're to be dealt with just as we just read. What's unfortunate is many churches start giving divisive people a platform because they don't want to rock the boat too much. What they don't realize is that they're literally implementing that church's self-destruction. You ever consider that you may be sabotaging the very church you would want it to become? That what you're doing and I'm doing is actually sabotaging the very thing we would want from our church. The ones that care about controversy are to be dealt with gentleness but firmness. If they're removed from the context of the local church, then others in that church can be helped, which is essentially where Paul finishes this text. Number three, focusing on others, verses 12 through 15. As soon as you've taken care of the divisive person, you can focus on other people. Starting in verse 12. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the, war, the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. I love the way this letter ends from the Apostle Paul. After telling them how to deal with those that cause division, by rejecting them and having them leave, you should now take care of others in that church and meet their needs. Paul has certain people that he needed to deal with that caused problems. But he also had others in the local church that he couldn't wait to help. This isn't, you worry about all the problems and ignore the needs of people that really have them in the church. This is, take care of the problem and still take care of the needs of others in the church. Unfortunately, a lot of churches either fight the battle with the divisive person at the expense of helping those in the church, or they try to help everybody, including the divisive person, by tolerating a bunch of stuff. And neither one works out well. There are specific people that he mentions here. Artemis, Zenus, Apollos, and Tychicus. These are all friends of Paul. Paul was not a lone ranger, as some of you may assume, when he's imprisoned. He had many friends that he still connected with, that he had personal relationships with, that he knew intimately. That's why he names many of them here. He's invested time with them. One of them is a lawyer, by the way. Zenus, that new Jewish law and how it worked at that time. I have no evidence to back this. This is just a postulation and a thought, okay? Not thus saith the Lord. This is pastor postulation. I do wonder sometimes if this is the lawyer that questioned Jesus in Matthew 22. That came to saving faith possible. No evidence to prove it. Just a thought. Especially when he asked, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? So what does Paul finish with after we've dealt with the controversial and avoided things that we need to avoid? He starts at the end here to start with this phrase, be diligent to come to me. Make it a point to visit. There's a practical truth right there. How often do we visit others? Do you make it a point to visit others? Or are you waiting for someone to visit you? The only reason why Paul's asking for someone to visit him is he can't. Many times he can't. 
He's in prison many times that he's writing these letters. And when he does, he does visit. He promises some of the churches that he's going to, when I have the opportunity, I'm going to go visit you. He made it a point to visit with people. Sanzinus and Apollos quickly, they have everything. Make sure that they have everything that they need. It's an amazing statement right there. Take care of them. Make sure they have what they need to make this trip. Make sure they're equipped for this trip. I love this next phrase. Our people need to maintain good works and meet urgent needs. This right here is where I'd like to park for a moment. As we spoke previously of good works and for the benefit of others to the glory of God, there are urgent needs that are in every local church that need to be met. That need to be met. And it is our imperative to do that. God has called us to that. And what many of us don't understand is that many times in meeting the needs of others, God meets our need. Have you ever met somebody that was stingy that really felt blessed? Or have you found someone that's a giver that feels more blessed? There's a truth in blessing to giving rather than receiving, the scripture calls. The blessed one is the one that gives because God himself gave. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't receive at times. Of course we should. There are things in our lives where we're going to need the help of others. And some of us are a little too prideful to accept it sometimes. Let's just be honest about that. If you're the type that says, I don't need any help from anybody else. I'm only the one that gives. I'm the only one that does it for others then you yourself have not done an honest analysis in your own life. Be careful, because you're not going to stand alone. You won't. Not a single pastor will stand on his own. Not a single church member will stand on their own. We need each other. It's important that the idea here is meet pressing needs. Something comes up in the local church that really needs to be dealt with. Meet that need as soon as you can. Not every need is a pressing need. You agree? I mean, I get it. We have a lot of things that come up that you know, we probably should be in prayer for, but not everything is a pressing need. What could be a pressing need? Well, a pressing need could be someone lost somebody recently and they need help. They need support. They need more than I'm praying for you. I'm here for you. I'm caring for you. Let me visit. Let me say something. Let me send you something. Let me encourage you with this. Those are pressing needs. What's not a pressing need is worrying about a piece of paper on the ground as much as that might be important to pick up. It's not a pressing need. And sometimes we major on the minors in the church. I think cleanliness is important. I think taking care of things that God has given us here are important. But I think what's most important is being attentive enough to see the needs of others in the church and meeting those pressing needs. And here's the other thing too, church, and this is, this is an area I really want to be a little more honest and open about. So many of us are a little closed off about when we have a pressing need. When you've got something going on in your life, in your marriage or your home and your finances, be willing to open up and share that with others. I know it's not so easy for some of us, especially us men, like, I got it. I don't need any other guy helping me. Give me a break. I'm a man. You still have things that you deal with. I'll be perfectly honest with you, church. I think the church itself could do wonderful things for the kingdom if we were more honest with ourselves and God. If instead of saying we have it all together, maybe we let ourselves fall apart and let God put us back together with other brothers and sisters alongside us. You can't pretend that it's always perfect in your life and think that it won't get worse. 
It always does. Hypocrisy has a way of doing that to us. We reap what we sow. And unfortunately, what a lot of people sow, a lot of things that they should not want to reap later on, and they still keep sowing. And by the time that reaping season comes along, it's dangerous. It's frightful. It's terrifying. Paul is saying that something that needs to be developed or learned among the people of God is to meet pressing needs that occur. This is something to be learned in the church. This doesn't automatically happen. We need to get better at this church. We're not there. We're a far way away from figuring this out. We need to get better at meeting pressing needs. Praying for one another, supporting one another, coming alongside one another. If those things that are done in the church, then that church won't be unfruitful and unproductive. Church, if we want the church of Jesus Christ to be a church that grows in grace, then we ourselves need to be more and more aware of what it is that God wants us to do in the lives of others. If you want to be a church that impacts the community, then be a person that cares to impact people around you. You see, sometimes what ends up happening is we tend to think, well, the church needs to do this, the church needs to do that, and then pause for a moment and realize you're part of that. The church needs to be more loving. You need to be more loving. The church needs to deal with sin more. You need to deal with sin more. The church needs to care for the needs of others. You need to care for the, sin, the needs of others. God's called you to that and me to that. He hasn't just called the person next to you or behind you or in front of you. You personally is called to that, to that. Do you want to be busy about what God wants or what you want? Because this right here is why we need to pay attention to the needs of those around us. That's what we should be about. Offering an encouraging word. Stopping by for a visit. Helping out wherever the need is there. Taking the time to actually care, not just offer up a prayer. Don't do what James warns against. Ah, oh, I'll bid you Godspeed. I've got it in me to help you out, but I'm not going to help you. I'm just going to pray for you. Well, isn't that a nice spiritual cop-out? Some of you know what I'm talking about. There are moments in our lives where God confronts us on this. You had the ability to help that person, and all you decided to do was just pray? When in that prayer, God has already answered it, and you don't like the answer. Well, God, call someone to do this in their life. He's called you, possibly. Maybe it's not another brother or sister. Maybe it's you that he's speaking to. Too often the church spends a majority of its time on the troublemakers stirring controversy, trying to appease them, while they have brothers and sisters with real needs that are faithfully walking with God. There's only so many times you can warn a brother or sister about bitterness before you yourself become a bitter person hanging out around them. And I want to pause and make the statement, and I really mean this from the bottom of my heart. If you're a bitter person, realize why other people don't want to spend time with you. It is not because they hate you. But it truly infects and affects their life. And they want to live in joy before God. And they're not out to get you. They don't have a personal vendetta against you because they realize how bitterness works in their own life. The church should be about the business of helping the most urgent matters in their midst. And not waste their time on those who only care to stir the pot. In fact, as was previously mentioned, they are to be removed or as one translation puts it, banned from fellowship. You don't need those people in the church. They only hurt the church further. But you have many in the church that have needs that need to be met. 
And don't just think because someone doesn't share that they have needs that they don't have them. Be aware that some of us are a little more open about sharing and others of us are a little more closed about sharing. This is why it's so important to develop relationships in the church. So in conclusion, what response do you take? What response do you take? Are you a person that likes getting caught up in the foolish conjectures of scripture without any desire to really dig deep in order to really know God in a more personal, intimate level? There are many people that talk the talk. Oh man, I love the Lord. I'm really, yeah, just look at this amazing thing. And they watch some weird conspiratorial garbage online from a guy that knows no scripture. And he's claiming he knows what God's talking about today. Careful with that stuff. It's foolishness. I'm not saying that, you know, the government bats a thousand. They don't. But goodness, some of the stuff we buy into is garbage. And it's not biblical. It's foolishness. We've all been tempted into sowing division or being a part of someone else's ploy. The question remains, how do we respond? Do we entertain it? Or do we warn them? Hey, brother, sister, like, you're causing division here. Like, I know you feel off by what happened. Did you go talk to that person? Well, no, I didn't. Well, that's a place to start. Instead of spewing it to me. I had nothing to do with that situation. Why are you sharing that with me? Those that cause division should be warned because it's a serious matter as it's something that Satan absolutely loves going on in the church. He loves sowing discord. And when you're caught up in it, you don't see it. Do this, and you'll be shocked as to how many times you're involved in this. Pause for a moment and think for a moment, hey, do I have something against somebody in the church right now that I don't openly acknowledge? Do I have a certain feeling towards a person in the church? Man, I, they really bother me. I don't like them. I don't want to talk to them. I can't stand them. What's the reason behind that? We need to dig deeper into what it is that goes on in our hearts sometimes. And sometimes we don't know because we don't care to ask that question. One of my favorite things, and I wouldn't say a favorite, but it truly is fascinating that it happens so often, is when a bitter person says they're not bitter. It seeps out of them. Or a person filled with anxiety goes, I'm not. You're worrying about everything. And some of us who are supposedly morally upright have real struggles at home. Folks, we need to deal with these head on. The real needs. And many times the needs that we have are from a sin that we haven't dealt with. Could it be that the need that you have for love and tenderness and affection could be because of a sin that you have refused to deal with? And that brother or sister that's trying to help you out, they're doing it for your benefit, not for your detriment. Check your attitude. You may be one that is unknowingly doing that even today. Maybe your focus should not be on those that cause trouble, but rather on those that have pressing needs in the church. There are certain people that wise people tend to avoid. Not because they don't care for them, not because they don't love them, but because they know just enough time spent with them will absolutely permeate their attitude and their behavior before God. You want to have a bad influence as a Christian? Go hang out with people in the world that are drunks. You'll eventually be okay with a lot of things that you didn't realize. What's fascinating is when things like that go on in a church and people are okay with it. You've got to be careful, brothers and sisters. You've been so caught up trying to help those that only stay embittered that you've lost your own joy. may seem like a harsh statement that comes from me as a pastor sometimes, but there are certain people in the church I do my best to help 
as much as I can, and I realize that they don't want help, they refuse help, they keep pushing back on anything that I give them that scripture says they need to deal with, I can't spend my time when I've got other people in the church that have real needs that need to be met, and they do love the Lord and want to live for him. does not mean that we don't love brothers and sisters. It just means that we deal with different people differently. Maybe there really is no hope in helping them, but simply warning them as they become a danger even to you. There are plenty of urgent, pressing matters that God wants us to be aware of and take care of in the church. That's why he gave us the body. We will be productive as a church in caring more for the right people and avoid and reject those that only seek harm and destruction to the church. If a brother or sister only finds reasons to detest and complain about the local church, they are essentially being a tool that Satan's using. Even Peter himself need to be called out. So if that's you, take it as he did and repent. Don't continue causing controversy. But turn in repentance to God. Own what it is that you've contributed to. You can't repent for your congregation's sins. You can only repent for your own. But I dare say many of us stand in judgment of others without repentance over our own. Which is why many of our relationships are fractured. Church, may we be the church that God would want and do things as He has stated clearly. Mm -hmm.